Good morning. Well, here I am after 30 plus years of ministry, finally on video for the first time. You know, that would make my parents really proud because many of you know, as I became a Christian in a television production and film school way down in Hollywood on La Brea Avenue many, many, many years ago. And all I wanted to do in life until I came to Christ was make movies. And I still wanted to do that after I came to Christ for a while. And then I got the call. Go into the ministry, young man. So I had to go home and explain to my parents, who were substantially subsidizing my education, that I was done with film and done with film school, and I was headed to college and seminary to study for the ministry. And you know what? They just weren't as excited as I was. So maybe you can combine them, my mom said. And my dad said, yeah, like those preachers on TV. Uh, no. I mean, uh, look at me. I mean, is this a television face? <laughs> and this voice, it's not a media voice at all either. Nor do I like being in front of cameras, actually. But it's 2020, I'm 60 years old, and it's time. So the coronavirus is giving me a new experience and fulfilling my parents' recommendations. So like everything, there's good and bad. I actually don't like to preach to a camera, but I do like getting to preach in my civilian clothes at least without a time. And I really do like not having to make the bulletins every Saturday for the first time in 30 years. So that's two goods and one bad. And the bad isn't so bad because I have here a little congregation of five, counting Danny Hupman, my cameraman. One more thing, not everyone gets to watch this online. So I'm determined to wait on continuing our study in Matthew until we can all be back together again in one place in church. We are not sure when that's going to be. We're always weighing ministry needs with government mandates and all of that, but uh, Matthew will give us all something to look forward to together, I think. Today, we're going to mainly be in the book of Revelation and Psalm 91. So you might want to turn your Bibles to there and be ready, and let's get at it. Well, welcome to our first Coronavirus Act on Faith Bible Church sermon. <laughs> so we're going to be uh, not doing Matthew today. We're going to postpone that until we can all be back together. But we are going to look at the scriptures today, and I kind of want to talk about um, what's going on around us from sort of a historical perspective and also a biblical perspective, obviously, and then our, our response to it. So let me pray and get us started. Father God, we just thank you for your word, which comforts us and guides us in all circumstances, including the unique circumstances we find ourselves in today, and we just ask for you to bless and just help us to grasp uh, the big picture here, as well as how it applies to our daily lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to start with the, the big picture and then kind of come down to where we're living today. And so let me start with something we all know, but we need to remember that God judges the nations. One of the remarkable things about the Old Testament is that it's not just a Jewish book. Um, that is, it doesn't only deal with Israel. Abraham was the chosen founder of the Jewish people, the chosen people through his son Isaac and then through Jacob. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have any interest in other people groups. In fact, the great covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham, was that in his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So right from the beginning, God's reason for a special chosen people was to bless all peoples. 
But God's also the judge of all nations. They stand under his sight, and he evaluates them to see if they're good and just or evil and pervert justice. And all peoples and all rulers, kings and magistrates, are under divine scrutiny and divine authority. He sees all that's going on, even the things we don't see, he sees it. And he's measuring them by a standard of justice and righteousness, which he defines by his own nature. So on Friday nights, recently, when in this room, we uh, finished a survey of the books of the prophets, all the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, those are not musical keys there, the major and the minor. We're just major prophets are the longer prophet books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets are the smaller prophet books like Micah and Obadiah and things like that. So um, minor prophets don't sound any more sad or grim than the major prophets. In fact, they all are pretty sad and grim. But um, saying how God is going to judge those nations. But almost all of them have really beautiful points of light about who the Messiah is and what he's going to do when he comes back and establish his kingdom. So anyway, I'm going back through these minor prophets and these major prophets, and I'm thinking through them, and it really made me realize, again, just how many prophecies in the prophets are directed at Israel's neighbors, uh, other countries, people that are not chosen, they're not covenant people. God actually speaks through his prophets to people groups other than Israel. Isaiah, for example, has 11 chapters, chapters of prophecies to nations other than Israel. Chapters 13 through 23 are all aimed at foreign nations, and there's 11 different people groups that he talks to and gives messages from God. And Jeremiah has six chapters, 46 through 51, aimed at other peoples, nine different people groups other than Israel. And among the minor prophets, Amos has six foreign nations that he speaks to. Obadiah is not about Israel at all. It's all aimed at Edom. Uh, Nahum is all about the Assyrians and Nineveh. And of course, Jonah was sent to Nineveh personally to prophesy to that great pagan city um, to re- in calling them to repentance, which they did do. They actually repented. But that was his mission, preach to the Assyrians. So off he didn't go. But God put him there, and he did end up going there. So God cared about them as well. So the Bible's just not about Israel. God observes, he judges, and speaks to nations that are not his special chosen ones. And there's a principle in the book of Proverbs that really applies to all nations, ancient and modern. All nations at all times. It's Proverbs 14.34, and it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So it it is about Israel, but it's not just about Israel, any nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, any nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. That's a general principle. Does it apply to Israel? Yes. Does it apply to Bolivia? Yes. Does it apply to China? Yes. Does it apply to the United States of America? Absolutely, yes. So God looks among the nations and he looks for justice. Fairness in the courts for the poor and the weak, integrity in the rulers and in the judges, and he looks to see if bribes are running a nation or law, justice or corruption. He's looking for all of those kinds of things. And sometimes God even just looks at a nation for their spiritual sins, their idolatry, obviously, but also sins of pride. Um, Edom, for example, in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6, God says, We have heard of the pride of Moab an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. His idle boasts are false. 
Therefore, Moab will wail, and everyone of Moab will wail. So in these prophecies about foreign nations, God is usually foretelling their doom, their end. And sometimes he talks about them collapsing, but not going away completely. And Moab's a pretty good example of that, actually. The Isaiah prophecy ends like this. Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. And that's exactly what happened to them. They were a very powerful, secure nation, and they became a kind of a laughingstock, poor, defenseless little place. So God raises up nations, and he casts them down. And Moab's just one example of that. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So I've been thinking about all this recently because of the current situation that we're in and this uh, lockdown and the coronavirus and all of that, which is a serious medical concern, but it's not the Black Death. So um, we're not all going to die from coronavirus. Whole populations will not be decimated by it or worse. I mean, during the plagues, the Black Death in in, uh, medieval history, 30% of Europe's population died, estimated. And in some countries, over 50%, or in some localities, over 50% of the population died. It's actually hard to imagine that, but that's what was going on for a period of time. So we know from Scripture that all of these things are from God's hand. He's absolutely sovereign, and he brings judgments upon people for their sin and tries to get their attention through all kinds of catastrophes and situations. So disasters, droughts, plagues, viruses, they're all from God's hand. They're from him. And this current virus pandemic isn't as deadly as some we've had in the past, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take it as a wake-up call, because it shows how weak we are and how fragile we are. It could be a lot worse We're not as mighty as we think we are, and it's pretty clear from what's going on that we don't have all the answers. They just found out the other day that that, uh, men are affected by it more than women. They're dying from it more than women, and they go, we have no idea why. I mean, there's things they just don't know. So all of our best minds are, are racing to find a way to stop it, and all of our technology is being bent towards that end, but they're all saying it's going to take time to figure this thing out. So we just don't have all the answers. I read that more than 15% of working people have lost their jobs. It could be as high as 20%. And many small businesses are going to have a hard time coming back and recovering. Hopefully that will be very temporary, but they're talking the word depression. So that's a very real possibility for the next decade or so. It's possible. So we're not as mighty as we think, and we need to reflect as a culture on our sins and our pride. And we don't want those things to bring us down. Because God is just, and he does deal with nations. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Don't forget that. So we're seeing in a fairly minor event, historically speaking, just how fragile civilization is, how fragile the world order is. And we're learning something about human beings, too, when this kind of thing happens, don't we? The hoarding. um, When there's no scarcity, people are hoarding. Fights over toilet paper and bottled water, and we're just starting to, we're we're not talking about insufficient supply, there's plenty of toilet paper in the world, but people are panicking, they're just going crazy about it. There's no real lack, but imagine 
imagine if the world was struck by multiple catastrophes at the same time that really did provide scarcity. I mean, things just weren't there. There wasn't enough food. There's not enough toilet paper. They're going to have to remake all those end-of-the-world movies about toilet paper because they don't usually include that. But what would people do when there's real scarcity? How are they going to act with each other? What will they do? Although there are many plagues and catastrophes throughout history and many failed states, one thing people do is they move. They move somewhere else. They go somewhere else. So if there's a drought in one place in your homeland, your whole tribe gets up and goes somewhere else. I mean, history is full of mass migrations of people looking for better land. And of course, whoever was living in better places where people wanted to go, they had to be driven out or enslaved or absorbed or destroyed. And that's how human beings have dealt with the problem in the past. They've just moved. But our time's pretty different. Now, we do still have migration and great waves of migration in current history. That's going on right now all over the world. But right now, it's different because we can see everything happening at the same time. We actually get to see the whole world in a glance. There aren't mysterious, distant, beckoning lands that we can go to, cross the oceans and find the new world and explore that. We know what's going on all over the world. We have 24-hour daily global news that reaches every corner of the earth. And the entire economy of the world is profoundly interconnected. So more than ever, problems start to ripple throughout the world through the global markets and global trade. And that is new. Well, it's fairly new. It doesn't happen very often. There was something like that, a, a total collapse that happened in a circle of many nations that were dealing and trading with each other. It actually happened in the 12th century B.C., in fact, 1187 was a really bad year. Total collapse of a fairly stable world order. And it lasted for centuries, and it actually remade the ancient world. Uh, the Greek, the famous Greek culture that we knew actually grew out, grew out of that collapse, but it took centuries for that to happen. Scholars are still debating why that happened it just suddenly to all of these very powerful nations all at one time that were all interconnected and trading with each other, but it just happened. But our world today is much larger and much more interconnected and much more in interdependent than at any time in history. So when God judges now, everybody's affected and we're seeing that because we are traveling all over the place together. We're inter our economies are intertwined together. So I was rereading the book of Revelation this week, and right near the end, right near the end, God pours out his wrath on the whole world. The whole world at once. There's no place to move to. Where are you going to go? Revelation chapter 15, it begins with these words. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. This is called the bowl's judgment. They're actually holding these plagues and bowls, and they're going to pour them out, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. So in chapter 16, they start pouring out these plagues on the world, the whole world. Verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go! And pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image, which is almost everybody in the world. Malignant sores, painful sores. That's just angel one. 
The second angel pours his bowl of God's wrath on the oceans, and it says that all the sea, all life in the sea dies. Can you imagine that? All the fish die, all the mammals die, all the creatures in the sea die. The third angel strikes the rivers and the streams, and they become like blood, it says. And this angel actually speaks to God, the third angel. So the water is destroyed. It's um, polluted all over the world. And this angel speaks to God and he says in verse 5, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And then it says the altar in heaven chimes in and says, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So then in verse 8, the fourth angel, quote, poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. So I hope you're feeling a little better about the coronavirus right now when you start thinking about these things. You would think that turning up the power of the sun, and that we don't know what that's doing, just the greater explosions up there, maybe moving a little closer to it, something like that's going on. But the, you think of the sun when it's at its absolute worst, and it's worse on that at that time when this angel pours out this judgment bolt. You would think people would start to repent. God, you're right. We repent in dust and ashes. We're so sorry. We repent. But that's not what happens. It says in verse 9, they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And that starts to become a theme in the chapter, the refusal to repent. So the fifth angel, more pain on the Antichrist capital. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And then the sixth angel dries up the Euphrates River, which allows a massive eastern army to cross over um, to a place called Harmageddon. And verse 14 says, this is so to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty, because Messiah will come and destroy them. But there's one more angel, and he's got a bowl of wrath as well. He's the seventh and final angel. And he takes up his bowl, and as he does so, a voice from God's throne says, It is done. And then everything comes loose. Here's what it says, verse 18. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God, because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. As each of these bowls of God's wrath is poured out, you can imagine an interconnected world 
with one central government over the nation suddenly struck with multiple disasters and catastrophes, destroying resources, massive illness, far beyond any far beyond any medical ability to even begin to cope with it, even start to cope with it. Complete economic collapse, massive joblessness, great scarcity of food, nations vying for resources. That one world government isn't going to hold together very well. So war is going to be inevitable, and war on top of collapse of the entire economic order. So, of course, chapter 17 and 18 describes the fall of this last great world empire. And you can see what people will care about then. It's just what they care about now, money and stuff. That's what they're going to be upset about. Economic success is gone. Trade, wealth, this world. So you can see here in Revelation what the world really cares about, and it shouldn't be any surprise. Revelation chapter 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, her being the whore of Babylon, the, this uh, religious system, the the empire puts forth the people. The kings of the earth will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep, cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things, who became rich from her, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. That's what they care about. That's all that they care about. A short life with earthly treasures. That's all they were focused on. So the merchants are weeping and howling and pouring ash on their heads. And then in Revelation 18, heaven is actually called upon to rejoice over the fall of Babylon the Great. They're, they're grieving it, but heaven is rejoicing over it. In fact, heaven is commanded to rejoice over it. The empire of corrupt man. And that's how chapter 18 ends. And in chapter 18, there's more praise for God's judgments. And then Jesus comes back in power to set the world right. And that's how the current age will end. So, why am I speaking about all these horrible judgments today when we're thinking about viruses and sheltering in place and all those kind of things? Pastor, couldn't you be a little more uplifting today? Well, for one thing, what we're facing is pretty mild stuff in comparison to the book of Revelation, so you should be a little happier having read that in that sense. Not to minimize it either, because there are people who are dying and will die from this current situation, and the economic situation could take quite a long time to recover. 
that means business is failing and people out of work, and we have to take care of each other with regard to all that. So some people are, are using the word depression and talking about it. So that's not small stuff. It's very serious. But literally, it's not the end of the world. So you don't have to think of it in those kind of terms. Don't be overly alarmed about what's going on today. Don't read in tragedies that haven't happened yet. Uh, we should be thankful actually, that this is not more serious, and recognize it for what it is, a wake-up call, that our system is weak, the international order is fragile, and it can break pretty easily. Somebody called me this week, pretty intense, and he said, is this it? Is the rapture about to come? I mean, he was very concerned. I said, I hope so. I mean, I hope the rapture is coming because uh, I'm rapture ready personally, and I want it. I want it to happen. Going to heaven is not a problem for me. Uh, it is the end of all problems. But we're not quite there yet. I don't think. I could be wrong about that, though, and I'd be happy if I was wrong. But that leads to, leads me to my second point here. Sometimes, sometimes God permits us to have reminders that this world is not and must not be our home. We can't be too settled here. And Jesus said it so plainly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our treasure has to be in eternal things. So remember that. Uh, this is all temporary. The whole world's temporary. This situation's temporary. Paul said, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. That's so critical. It's hard to do that, isn't it? We live in this world. This is the world we see and interact with every day. But to look up and set our mind on things above is critical for the Christian life. And more so now, but hopefully now is just a reminder to do that, which will carry through when times are better. Because we need to do that all the time. The things above include trusting God, uh, imitating Christ, being Christ-like in this world, recognizing God's sovereign rule over all things, that all things come from his hand. And that's okay, because he always does what's right and good. So, we have to let our God-ordained circumstances, whether personal or national or global, just be put in perspective. He's in control, absolutely in control. So, we could focus down here, well, I can't do this, or I couldn't go here, or they canceled my favorite this, or whatever it is, you know. But look above because that's God's will. What's happening down here is God's will, and it's the right thing for now. Maybe you were too attached to, the, to this or that, and maybe had to let it go for a little bit, and maybe you'll develop habits that put that in perspective and ways of living that can put some other things in more in perspective. Amen. Think about that. Look above. Look above. That leads me to another point. Use your time well. Ephesians 5.15 Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You've got fewer places to go. Well, your Bible's home with you. You might have more time with your family than you're used to having. And make a, take, take advantage of that situation. Make your time useful. Don't just, um, you know 
Netflix has a lot to offer. Some of it you should not be partaking of, but it has some good things to offer. But don't just be a couch potato. I've, I've seen all these memes. Uh, for the first time in history, you can serve the world by sitting on your couch and watching TV. Don't go there. <laughs> don't spend all your time doing that. Don't waste your time. Learn. Um, you've got your Bible. You've got fewer distractions so you can focus. In fact, learning to focus is a, a difficult thing for modern people because we have so many distractions. So maybe avoid the distractions and learn to focus. Read a really good book and share that book. Maybe read a good book to your children. You can binge watch stuff on Netflix, but maybe you can use your time more wisely. Maybe focus on things that will benefit you. Mature you, grow you, learn something new. Include good Christian reading and good content in what you're doing. Don't just amuse yourself. You've got an opportunity here to improve yourself. You can learn. You can take online classes. You can um, watch really constructive things and read really good good things, things that will build you up. If you have kids, read Scripture together and discuss it. If uh, they haven't heard it, tell them how you became a Christian and your testimony. Talk about the current situation in the light of Scripture. Let them grasp that man is sinful, and that's why people are fighting over toilet paper, and that God is sovereign. Share those things. Get, give them a Christian perspective on things. Talk about God's justice and evaluating the world. Teach them some life skills. Teach them how to sew. Do you guys want to learn how to sew? No? Okay. Mom's going to teach you. One does. Good. Cooking. Auto maintenance. Build something in the backyard. There's all kinds of ways you can use your time. Teach them some things. Teach them some things. Check on your neighbors. Use your time for that. Check on church folk. Use your time for that. A couple of men in the church have already contacted me and said, if somebody needs something done, I am here and I'll do it. So be like that and take advantage of that. Make those kind of connections. Help each other. There might be very practical things you can do for other people. Just shopping might be something people can do. Some people shouldn't be out right now that have um, immune deficiencies and things like that or are elderly, you might shop for them. That would be a really helpful thing to do. Fourth, just don't let fear grip you. you. Christians are not to be fearful people at all. Trust in God. Trust in God's goodness. Don't misuse the Bible either. That's another thing. Um, you know, I was watching a clip of a prosperity preacher last week. I won't mention his name. He had a huge auditorium full of people during this virus. And he said they should be there every week in that crowded environment because they were protected by God. And it was a sacred place where, where he was preaching, and so viruses won't bother anybody there. Now, he used scripture for that, Psalm 91. You might want to look at Psalm 91 for a minute because I just want to kind of explain this. You don't want to misuse God's word in response to a crisis. And that's what he was doing. Because I'm sure his financials would be uh, lower if people didn't show up the following week. So that's why he was giving them this bogus interpretation of Psalm 91. But Psalm 91 is actually pretty amazing if you think about it. I'm going to read from uh, verse 5 there. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by the day. Verse 6. Of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. 
No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. And the man said, If it's true that you're safe in your tent, how much safer are you in this holy building where we have church? So he's telling them, a massive crowd of people all packed together that a virulent infection will not spread at church, at least his church. That is not only foolish, it's incredibly evil to mislead people that way. Does Psalm 91 mean that a Christian is immune from infectious diseases? Well, it sort of sounds like that. Is a church a germ-free place? Is it true that the Black Death, for example, could not touch you as long as you're worshiping the Lord in church? No, that's not true. In fact, some of the greatest and bravest and godliest missionaries in the history of the church died in their 20s and 30s of tropical diseases while bringing the gospel to faraway places. It's not an uncommon story. It's a common story. Hudson Taylor buried his very young wife on the mission field. So we are not immune. Well, pastor, are you saying that Psalm 91 then isn't true? Isn't It's not true? No, I'm not saying that. But, you know, what's the first rule of interpretation? Context. That's what I've always heard. In fact, I've heard the first three rules of interpreting the Bible are context, context, and the third one is context, because it's so important. So you need to look at Scripture carefully. What is the context? And when you're doing Bible study, probably the most important thing to ask, especially when you're talking New Old Testament and New Testament, is ask this question, what covenant is the author under? What covenant is he under? It's absolutely critical question. Psalm 91 is under a covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, and also what is often called the Palestinian covenant, that was when that covenant was ratified in Deuteronomy, when Moses and the people were waiting to go into the Holy Land after the 40 years. So they had this covenant at Sinai, and then they were wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then when they were about to go in, they, God renewed the covenant with them in the book of Deuteronomy, and that's called the Palestinian covenant. It's the chapter 28 and following in Deuteronomy. Psalm 91 is based on the promises of the covenant that God made with his chosen nation, that if they were faithful and they obeyed, God would keep from them the diseases that afflicted all their surrounding nations. They just would not get those diseases. He did promise them that. He said their crops would grow and not fail, that their flocks and their herds would thrive and not fail. And all sorts of bounteous blessings are promised in that covenant, the Palestinian covenant made with the Jewish people. In fact, God said their women would not miscarry. That is not our promise. That was a promise made with a nation that was to be God's light to the world. But that is not our promise. It's really interesting that the very next verse that I haven't read yet in Psalm 91, which you may recognize from the New Testament, says this, verse 11, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Do you remember those words? Who, who quoted those words in the New Testament? Who quoted Psalm 91 out of context? Jesus. Satan is the one that quoted that. 
he quoted it to Jesus, trying to get him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. Do you remember that? He took him up there and said, here's what the Bible says. Why don't you jump? And Jesus said, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So no, you don't claim Psalm 91 and jump off of a cliff. Even if it says, angels will catch you. Catch me, angels! Here I go! That's not what you're supposed to do. You don't walk into an Ebola ward without a mask and kiss everyone and shake their hand and then go home and kiss your wife and children. You don't do that as a Christian. Claiming Psalm 91. This plague will not touch me. I would just recommend don't do that. Don't test the Lord. The psalm ends with this. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. But you know what? Christians sometimes die young. Very godly Christians sometimes die young. That doesn't mean the psalm isn't true. It means we're not under that covenant. Does Psalm 91 have meaning for Christians? Of course. We read this psalm understanding its proper context and realize that God is all-powerful and that we are secure in him. Nothing can touch you that is not ordained by him. He's an omnipotent protector, but even Jesus, God's own son, knew that you don't act recklessly and put God to the test. And the New Testament doesn't make any promises. The New Testament doesn't make any promises about immunity from diseases. For Christians. In fact, we're called upon to suffer for Christ, and sometimes in our suffering, we grow more deeply spiritually, and we're a, a greater light to the world around us that sees our faith in suffering. You want to have some words to lean on during this crisis? I, I think New Testament words are probably more appropriate. Jesus' words, Luke chapter 12, um, verse 29, Jesus said, Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That's a passage for today. God's plans are not to be feared. He has you. He loves you. He's not reluctant to give you the kingdom. He's glad to give you the kingdom. He wants you to have his kingdom. He is so well disposed towards his own people. That's all that matters is in the end is that we're part of his kingdom and we get to represent that kingdom in a world that is enemy-occupied territory. You know, this world is not bowing the knee to God, but we do while we're in it and we represent a coming kingdom. That's our job. That's our mission. We're not promised total protection from everything here. In fact, we're told we're going to suffer, so that's okay. But for now, we just trust that God is good, and we're going to use our time well. We're going to be on our knees for our nation, for our friends and family and the people around us, our church family. We're going to be patient with one another. We're going to serve one another, and we're not going to be afraid. Don't be afraid, little flock. Let's pray. God, you are a redeemer and a protector. Just show us your way in these troubling but interesting times. Let us be a light. Let us be a light by being calm and trusting you. Let us be a comfort to the lonely 
and the afflicted and the troubled. You've given us so many days, and you've given us these very circumstances. So let us live for you in that and glorify you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. We're going to be here for you. Amen.